0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for today's interview with Dashun Wang, professor uh, at the Kellogg School of Management and McCormick School of Engineering at Northwestern University, and also with Albert Laszlo Barabashi, Robert Gray Dodge Professor of Network Science and Distinguished University Professor at Northeastern University. Their book, The Science of Science, was published by Cambridge University Press last year. The Science of Science. No, it's not a tautology. It's a good idea, and it will benefit all of science and as well all of us who benefit from science. The idea is to reapply the scientific method to the practice of scientists. It's science done on the science. And it's being done now in big it's being done now in big measure, thanks to the well-worn but very useful four-letter word data. The computational possibilities of today and the exponential increases of those possibilities on a weekly basis are a major driver of this new interdiscipline, the science of science. And the data point that receives perhaps the greatest attention here is the citation. Here are Dashun and Laszlo, authors of today's book, The Science of Science, in their own words about the citation. A citation is a formal reference to some earlier research or discovery, explicitly identifying a particular research paper, book, report, or other form of scholarship in a way that allows the reader to find the source. Citations are critical to scientific communication, allowing readers to determine whether previous work truly supports the author's argument. Used appropriately, they help the author bolster the strength and validity of their evidence, attribute prior ideas to the appropriate sources, uphold intellectual honesty, and avoid plagiarism. For the author, citations offer a vehicle to condense and signal knowledge and eliminate the need to reproduce all of the background information necessary to understand the new work. Lately, however, citations have taken on an additional role. The scientific community has begun using them to gauge the scientific impact of a particular paper or body of work. This is possible, the thinking goes, because scientists only cite papers that are relevant to their work. Consequently, groundbreaking papers that inspire many scientists and research projects should receive many citations. On the other hand, incremental results should receive few or no citations. Yet as straightforward as this linkage between impact and citations may appear, it is fraught with ambiguity. How many citations constitute? A lot. What mechanisms drive the accumulation of citations? And what kinds of discoveries tend to garner more citations? Can we know how many citations a paper will collect in the future? How soon can we tell if a discovery has sparked serious interest? We must also take a step back and ask what citation counts tell us about the validity and impact of the ideas described in the paper. Put simply, are citations meaningful at all? That is Dashun Wang and Laszlo Barabashi from their book The Science of Science. This is Dashun and Laszlo on Scholarly Communication. Hi, Dashun. Hi, Laszlo. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having us. Thanks, Daniel. This
1: is fun. Let's delve into it.
0: Very good, yeah. Well, perhaps I'll just pick right up where I kind of left off there um, at your own question. Are citations meaningful at all? And since I know from reading that, yes, citations are definitely meaningful, perhaps you might begin by laying out just how meaningful and just how they are meaningful. So, um, okay, I'll, I'll go first,
2: and Lazo, you can add uh, more thoughts to it as well. So, you know, citations are, you know, it's it's it was widely studied, and then part of the reason was that it, it sort of signals and approximates various knowledge flows uh, uh, across papers or patents. For example, economists study a lot of citations as well and uh, and and so that overall as more and more people build on future work and that start to the citation relationship start to carry a new uh, role in quantifying the impact of a certain paper how many citations you have seems to approximate how many future work tend to build on your work? And and then that's sort of how much of your work inspired future work. So that's part of the, to me, the most meaningful part of citations is help us understand out of the millions, millions of papers being published every year, which papers are making an impact and helping enable future knowledge and future innovations. Uh,
1: so that's, you know, Laza, you want to add more? Sure, I mean, it's it's a very interesting question whether they're useful or not. They are here with us and they're embedded in the scientific discourse. They're embedded deeply into the scientific evaluation. So the question for us, I guess, for Doshun Sai is not here to kind of defend their utility, but saying it's here, it's being used, what are its advantages and what are its limitations? And how can we actually use big data to understand both the patterns that characterize them and their role in science? I don't think our goal in the book has ever been to make uh, uh, an argument for or against. But we do discuss actually what are what is the information carried by them. And also, what are the drawbacks if we use them to evaluate scientists or impact?
0: Yes, that point's also made very clear. And and uh, I, th- I think, though... You also enable citations to do work that perhaps we hadn't imagined. People are often just um, measuring them up and figuring out, well, I've got 100 or you've got 200, and you show very many nuances between those numbers, and that uh, sometimes you know 100 can mean more than 200, depending on when the citations are counted. In what fields, under what circumstances. One of the most interesting findings uh, there was between different sorts of uh, teams. When you were talking about certain teams developing and other teams um, disrupting the research here you were able to actually make a really fine case for how that looks in the scientific field of knowledge because of the way the citations work and the developing type of study you see a continuity that study is cited with previous studies whereas with the disrupting study you see let's see let's say fewer citations initially because they're not being cited with the with the previous studies and that's also a mark of the type of science that's being done so It was moments like this that made me realize actually how much information is involved in a citation.
2: Yeah, no, you had really great point. And just building on that, I think you know, first is to clarify, you know, uh, this uh, analyzing citations. This is not a new idea, right? It goes back to if you, I would, you know, I think the founding scholar of this so citation analysis would be using Garfield, who uh, first proposed Science Citation Index. But the Solar Press used the citation linkages, counting number of citations of a paper, back to nineteen sixties, right? So. So it's been a lot of work done over the past 50, 60 years on this domain. But I would, uh, I think, you point out something that's really interesting, and been sort of uh, I've been thinking a lot about this. Is I think one of the main developments in recent years uh, is is to sort of move significantly beyond counting the sheer count of citations, but also think about, you know, there's deep structures within the citation network, how citations are linked with each other, that will offer, you know, additional and sometimes quite useful information. For example, like the idea of disrupting versus developmental, you know, like uh, there are papers that have exactly the same number of citations. But for one paper, all their citations cites this paper, but ignores everything counts before, right? So this is what we call this paper is highly disruptive because it opens a new way of thinking. On the other hand, uh, you know, a paper can be cited the same number of citations, but all the citations also cited what came before. So in this case, the role of this paper is to amplify the existing literature. So, so, So this is where it gets us into this idea of thinking not just you know, citation as a count, but citations form very complex relationships uh, that can be systematically analyzed and then deciphered over of, uh, a uh, new use for information. And this is in part, uh, also thanks to the developments of field like network science, which also uh, has uh, contributed tremendously to that area. Uh, in thinking about sort of all these new tools of helping understand the complex relationships hidden behind data is also very important uh, for the advancement of this field right now.
1: Yeah, And I I should come back to what you mentioned, Daniel, at the beginning, that citations are information. And so whether you love it or hate it, we should not ignore the fact that there is information carried by that and quite quite a lot of information because you as an author, you only have a finite number of citations you can add to your paper, given the hundreds of millions of papers out there. So you are very specific uh, indicating knowledge base of what you want to talk about it by choosing one over the other. One. But but and the pattern that just dashun described, which was actually his work as well, is 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 a very subtle one and very interesting. Uh, but we can also go back a little bit and say, can we even compare citations across different fields? Which where your question started. And I think that that has really shown big advances. I think I'm, I'm thinking now here the work of Santo Fortunato about two decades ago, roughly, where he kind of showed that. You can take citations from different fields and kind of compare them to each other. Why is this an issue? Well, you know, I work a lot in Budapest uh, with mathematicians. And particularly, I I work with Laszlo Lovas, who is one of the top mathematicians in the world, just got the ABLE Prize two years ago. Well, when you look at the citations patterns that he and his prominent colleagues have, they're totally negligible <laughs> compared to, say, what the prominent biologist or even a mid-range biologist would get. And so then the question would be, how do you compare them? And I think in the most elementary way is that we actually see that while the numbers are different, the patterns are similar. That is a distribution of citations if you renormalize them by the field's average is identical in physics, mathematics, and biology. Why is this exciting and why is this important? Because really there are bases of really comparing citations to citations, impact to impact, community to community in a way that really kind of gives a reference frame across multiple fields. And that's what makes this whole area of science and science interesting. This is one of the many examples, right? Is that we have learned the last two decades to not just simply count citations and compare numbers, but to do so in a much more meaningful way and to extract knowledge about how science works using citations. So for us, science uh, citations are like a microscope through which we can actually see the intentions and the thinking of, of the community at large.
0: This comes out in particular when you talk about the dimension of time and its effect on impact of of research. And, And just as you're saying there, Laszlo, one of the most interesting findings for me in that chapter was that despite differences among different scientific fields, whether in methods or culture or data versus theory based, um, the way that a scientist chooses to build upon earlier work consistently influences whether that work will make a splash or not matter at all. So in other words, that, that compiling of the literature review, whichever form it might take in the different um, types of articles that these different fields use, is, is really key and you go even further, and this is and this 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 speaks precisely, Laszlo, to to what you are saying about differentiating and and and, and gaining a really um, detailed view of what the citations are doing. You go even further, and one of your figures, there is very many fantastic figures in this book, um, to show okay, you can cite old literature, only recent literature, or various mixes in between, until you essentially kind of tease out the sweet spot of citing. Regardless of field, uh, it's of course not the old or the new. It's it's a mix in between. Absolutely. You are
2: these work, by the way, just to highlight. Uh, it's called hotspot in science, where they look at whether the way you draw on a particular set of literature would predict your impact. The impact of the paper, and uh, yes, fa- it is a fascinating uh, pattern that they observe. It's this combination of. Uh, a vintage, well-developed literature, but combined with the cutting edge, the bleeding edge of knowledge. And this kind of combination consistently predicts the impact of
0: the papers. Uh, I thought, Lazo, did did you want to say something? No, um... I think I I totally agree, and this is yet another (laughs)
1: example of how one can actually use these analytical methods to really start getting at the intention and the emerging knowledge that comes through the citations. And one of, kind of taking the bigger picture, I mean, let's think about it. How fortunate we are in some ways in science, right? Uh, you know, there are multiple domains of uh, talent and inquiry and intellectual achievement, from music to art uh, uh, to performing art to to all the way to obviously science and so on. And science became the area where pretty much from 1900 till today, so which is a hundred twenty-year period we know everything that has happened thanks to data and so that we have an accurate record of what who wrote what right and how other people built on that level of knowledge and this journey that we have in science of science is part of a bigger journey of really understanding human accomplishments to understand how talent manifests itself and 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 you know how impact emerges in multiple areas And science became the playground for that, thanks to the fact that citations and publication records offer at the same time information about the productivity of the scientists, as well as the impact of the scientists, as well as every single work of he or she has done. So it's really kind of wrapped into this bigger picture that for the first time in our history, we're able to go back and say, how does knowledge emerge? how do discoveries emerge when do they do that how do they impact us how do we take it up when do we ignore it when do we not and and so and and within that of course the journey involves of finding these very detailed patterns that together add up to this bigger picture to understand how creativity manifests itself
0: so this this view that uh, these results that you get with these citations of what is actually happening in knowledge creation and science and uh, this this very differentiated view of what they can tell us about how careers perhaps uh, develop uh, when they might to quote some of your words there have hot streaks what might be um, the decisive factor in the next study, actually getting um, more citations than a previous study. All of these things are showing up inside of citation numbers and, and, and are clearly so much more than what perhaps many administrators or other people from the outside looking at a citation number are perhaps seeing. And this is one of those cautions that uh, comes up in the book for sure and that I've heard plenty other places as well that citations don't tell the whole story. Or if you're not reading them right, they might tell a story that – you're not actually hearing, right? You're you're <laughs> you're, you're listening for the wrong things. Um, I think you say also at one point in the book, no scientist career can be summarized clearly by a single number, and uh, this is something that very many uh, researchers in their fields, you know, are, are are lamenting, right? This is even something that has led to such important mo- moments like the San Francisco Declaration on Research Assessment. So, I mean there is the use of citation for science of science, there is the use of citation for the research itself, and then there's that other set of uses, advancing careers, judging people's tenure tracks, and so on. How do you bring all of these together? What would be some of your words to the different uh, uh, stakeholders involved there?
2: So I want to, I feel like this is a great question. I want to echo something that Lazaro touched on previously is that all these metrics, whether it's quantifies a paper or a career, all these metrics are being used heavily across different stakeholders in science, and that is a fact, right? So I think here we're offering, you know, the right the, the amount of nuances to surround this kind of debate and discussions. But I actually felt what we really tried very hard to do in the pay, in this book, is not just to illustrate how these measures are calculated and how to use them that, you know, although we did discuss, but that wasn't the main focus. I think the main focus is to help us understand the patterns behind this processes that these metrics are trying to capture. So I think that's kind of a very important flavor of the book is to try to see, you know, in other words, instead of focusing on metrics, the key focus is about understanding, is about understanding how careers unfold, what are the general patterns? And by understanding all these general and highly reproducible patterns, I think that also furthers our understanding of whether certain metrics may be more reasonable than others. So that's something I wanna just emphasize and reiterate here as well.
1: <laughs> and, and just to add kind of to that and to your question, Daniel, I mean, just about any tool in science and out of science is only useful if it's used for the right purpose with the right knowledge behind it. And to be honest, that's even true for a hammer, right? So, so in a way, you know, the idea that we can actually go ahead and judge people's career based on the citations without investing the time to understand what citations tell us about the person's career is fundamentally a misuse of that tool. And that has been really the purpose why Dushun set out to write this book and why he and I worked on that is to really offer the knowledge base for both scientists as well as science administrators of what are the nuances of how you can use that, and what is appropriate and what is not, uh, and, and how do you compare uh, these numbers, and when is it appropriate to use it or not. Because I think both Dutch and I are believers that there is lots of information in it, but we are also fully aware and discuss it many times in the book of how that can be easily misinterpreted if it's not used right. And the truth is that it cannot be easily used right. Why is it cannot? Why why uh, people have difficulty using it? Well, partly because there hasn't been a kind of a summary text like the Science of Science book that we wrote uh, with Dashun to give this knowledge base, that's number one. And number two is that even though citation data is now freely available for scientists, they have not yet been organized in a way to be able to analyze a person's career you get the raw data right you go to google scholar you go to science of uh, uh, science citation index and you get the raw data but you're not getting the insights and the tools to do useful comparisons we're hoping that this book and the community's work in general will lead there to offer people tools to kind of use it in a meaningful way but uh, but you have to be prepared and you have to have the humility to do so and the understanding of what this data tells you before you could use that to judge people.
0: And this does come out very clearly in the book. And I would also like to emphasize that I find that this is a very timely book. As you say, you're bringing together in one place. Finally, finally. this is a, this is a field that's expanding exponentially at the moment, science of science, but um, We'd we'd missed the handbook, the reference, right? I mean, all over the place you're finding articles being published, but you you bring into one place not only a lot of the data with very cogent um, interpretations of those datas, but also. Um, a clear message out to people who, just as you've said right now, and and it is very uh, clearly put throughout the book, its use, its misuse, and who your target uh, readerships are, who who it is that you're hoping out there um, to be able to help. And, And this is stated right up front, right? You're thinking of the scientist or the student of science. You're thinking of any of the policymakers anywhere from funding bodies down to publishers, and a third group, which I found interesting, was future science of scientists or collaborators with them. Um, so the book clearly is, from what I could see, following a mission. It, ha- it has a message in it, not just a bunch of uh, very interesting interpretations and loads of data.
2: Thank you, Daniel. I'm so glad you, uh, you got that uh, reading through the book, because that, to me, You know, both Lazo and I worked very hard on thinking through who are the audiences. You know, I always I often tell, you know, we actually wrote two versions of book. The first version was, you know, I I would say the first instinct is to write a book for this fast-developing field for the researchers in the field. And then we basically scrambled that version and realized, you know, then we're missing a huge opportunity because what the community offers, the science of science, this is a very meta community because it offers not only a better understanding of science, but also these understandings will be immensely useful for every scientist who do science on a regular basis, as well as all the decision makers, funders, uh, administrators, university leaderships alike. Uh, and these are what uh, you know. I think the people really could benefit from the field. So that's where uh, we completely uh, spr- sort of delayed, basically archived the first version and, and started from scratch to write this second version. It is what is published today where we hope to balance uh, across these audiences. So every scientist just may find this useful in helping them to think about how to develop their careers and how to find the right collaborators and, and inject uh, unpredictable diversity within their networks, uh, et cetera, et cetera. As well as thinking about, you know, if uh, uh, the provost of a university think about how to you know, identify, hire and train their scientists, their professors, you know, hopefully they will find it useful as well. So, so yeah, so that's kind of, per- at the same time, then we're also hoping that uh, every scientist who work in the field, you know, our colleagues will find it useful as well to have this cohesive synthesis of uh, what is very fast-emerging, fast-developing
1: literature, right? And I should add to that, that uh, Daniel, back to your point, that I really think that future scientists uh, uh, is one of our audience, and I hope so. And I can share a personal anecdote of that really shaped my life in that. Uh, I was an undergraduate student in Budapest uh, uh, in theoretical physics, and I was slated to work with a very famous uh, uh, professor there uh, who was the department chair and he was very, very influential in the Hungarian scientific community. And But he was on sabbatical so uh, and he was abroad, so in the meantime I started working with a young scientist who just returned from the U.S., in a different area. And so so the moment came that I had to decide when, when, when the big professor came back, whether I will really do what I intended to do to work with the big shot or stay with the young professor. And I spent lots of time in the library and accidentally I pulled off from the shelf or perhaps not accidentally a book that has collected the citations of all the Hungarian scientists. And I was shocked to realize that the young uh, professor who just joined the department had a much bigger international impact in terms of citations than the well-established national academy member uh, and the chair of the department. And that sealed my fate, I decided that I will stay with the young professor and I will not join the Seniors Personal Lab. And it was one of the best decisions I ever made in my life. And it was a data-driven decision. And I think this is why it's so important to empower students and young researchers to use this data in a way that shapes their career because it really helps them to understand where the impact is who are the people that the community really appreciates and in this case there were two individuals in the same field so it wasn't even a big deal of kind of comparing them right and 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 it gave me that that piece of information that i was missing because many of my colleagues including myself were simply drawn to the rank of the professor rather than it's his or her scientific impact so if we could inspire with this book other scientists to really make the right decisions in choosing their fields choosing the people they collaborate and they work with i think we achieved a lot for bettering science
0: well i i myself am in english for academic purposes so i'm helping scientists write and um I'm sure that you have achieved your goal because I, I, I'm I not even a scientist and there were moments in the book where I wrote W.O.W. next to certain statements or findings that you uh, were able to come up with. Wow. <laughs> and one of them got a wow, wow. So t- t- talking about, Laszlo, uh, your own experience there um, – in uh, the chapter where you talk about uh, the allocation of credit, for example, which is, of course, a major issue in and um, the impact that individuals, which is also another point that just brought up in the book, um, we work collaboratively, but everybody's um, assessment is individual. So, I mean, we find ourselves in a conundrum and that needs to also be just put onto the table for, as you're saying, for early career researchers, students to consider, to understand, okay, so I'm going to have to, I mean, everybody else in their careers, uh, pretty much outside of academia, I'd probably say, are very savvy when it comes to the different moves that they make in their career. And I would say a lot of researchers perhaps are so involved in their material, which they need to be. I mean, they're literally at the cutting edge that these are the things that they perhaps miss and 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 just to state the wow wow that I was <laughs> noticing there um, if you enter an established area of research, for example, and your co-authors have done significant work there, well then your credit share w- is probably something that's pre-established and and this is this leads to practical considerations for example, what does that mean for a postdoc when he or she is making a decision about? Who- which lab to enter into, which which project in that lab to pick up, and so on.
1: Yeah. And let me just say on that, and, and I'll pass it back to Dashun, is is that I always tell my students and postdocs, and Dashun may have actually heard it from me when he was in my lab many years ago, is that when we finish when we finish a paper I and mean, publish a paper somewhere, doesn't matter what venue, I tell them, listen, you need to be aware of that this paper is my paper. Because I'm the senior author and when people look at the authorship, they recognize me and don't, they don't know who you are. And your job now as a junior scientist, be that a student or a postdoc, is to go out in the community and convince them that it is your work and that you exist and they should start associating the paper with you. And some students and some postdocs do a very good job. Others do excellent science, but they're not able to transition to this kind of independent PI mode and getting credit for their work. One person who did a fabulous job is obviously Dashun, who has done it by the book, right? After finished my uh, his PhD with, uh, in my lab, he went on and in the same area that we kind of pioneered together, ended up publishing quite a number of highly impactful papers independent of me and my lab and kind of change the credit share from me to himself. And I think that is the type of role every young scientist should play. And they can do so by going on the community and publishing subsequently independently and establishing their independence. Thanks,
2: Lazaro. Appreciate it. Uh, you know, so uh, I learned so much uh, from from you. That's the best uh, period of a uh, most formative period of my career. Uh, so well, I can talk a whole hour about that, uh, you know, extremely grateful. Uh, but I just want to add more to this because I, I think, and this is an area that Lazaro has done um, a really interesting work on this. And so thinking about, you know, uh, how do we algorithmically infer the credit allocation, sort of capturing the collective perception of the scientific community of each work, which to me, that work is one of the most interesting works uh, in the field, I would say, over the past couple of years. And, and the point here is that this is one of the most canonical insights in the sociology of science, right? Thinking about Matonian dynamics, Matthew effect, the communication aspects of science. And and so what we come to realize is this is remarkably robust. You know, this is basically uh, doesn't change, hasn't changed over the past, you know, 100 years of science. It seems like always been the case, you know, start 1970s when Harriet Zuckerman interviewed Nobel Laureate they, in their own terms, they were describing the same phenomena, right? Sort of. So if you're famous, then this paper is identified with you. And if you're junior people, you may have done all the work, but uh, you know, you're, if people don't recognize your name, you're es- essentially anonymous uh, on the paper, right? So I, I think then this is an issue that's always been there. And in some ways I felt like this is an issue to some people, it's taboo. For some disciplines, it's not quite an issue. Like economics is uh, we're still emphasized on single author paper. But this is an issue that I would say is certainly uh, has not received proportional attention from the scientific community, right? And as teams are becoming more and more important and dominate the production of science, especially high-impact science, and this is an issue that increasingly, more and more, uh, the entire scientific community needs to confront, right? And I think in the book, we talk about this credit allocation and concerns and that and has implications for young scientists. I also felt and perhaps a less salient point we didn't make very specific in the book, is the point of thinking how this may have implications for science overall. Because if people forming collaborations with ex ante considerations for credit allocation, then would that mean there are collaborations that would have been fruitful, but because of the sociology aspects, of this credit allocation, then these collaborations are never formed. And and if that's the case, that will hurt the cumulative advances of science and the cumulative, given the cumulative nature of knowledge. And I think th- these are all the issues that we all need to grapple with and confront, uh, especially in today's science where... Collaboration is the rule, and and that's really where it's most beneficial. And then if we really want to harness the benefits of teams and collaborations, the credit issue is a very important issue for us to confront.
1: And I think there's a bigger picture here as well, which is, you know, Science is always depicted as a lonely enterprise, right? If you look at every single movie, it's always people, are, you know, the genius works alone and makes the big discovery, has the eureka moment and things like that. And, you know, that is certainly a true depiction of the 19th century science and maybe early 20th century. But pretty much any young scientist who starting his or her career today should count on the fact that it's, it ain't going to be like that, but it will be a collective enterprise. You'll be working in teams, you'll be making discoveries together, and you'll be pushing a card together. So, And if that is the case, then you need to kind of also be aware of the rules of the game and the impact of your actions. And I think that's what we try to do in the chapter about collaborations and credit allocation is to provide the information of what the data tells us, what are the best practices for successful teams? How do you put a good good team together? uh, What are the well-producing teams? And also, once you're part of the team, how do you get the credit for the work that you have done there?
0: I mean, this is going to turn into um, an educational process. That's what I see from the book, because there are just so many fantastic findings and there are so many findings that are coming our way on the near horizon for sure in the science of science and um what you're what i keep hearing and what you're saying is um, right the early career researchers they need to understand they need to understand i think i think the more seasoned or experienced researchers intuitively begin to pick it up but isn't that one of the wonderful contributions that the science of science can make um as you say One of the key points of sociology and science is the communicative aspect. And yet, isn't there a lack then in our educational system where science is a little bit like, Laszlo, as as you're portraying it, is an intense endeavor focused solely upon the subject matter? I mean, it is not. It's really not because I mean you can't say well focusing on impactful papers and so on and citation counts is it's cheapening the science. It it, it is the science. You're misunderstanding the science if you see that as cheapening the science. Science scientific knowledge comes through the consensus of the community.
2: Yeah, <laughs> you're right. So I, I think this also relates to another point as you're talking, and I think that reminds me. I think in some ways, you know, science or scientific knowledge is all published, it's all out there, and and it's freely accessible to everybody, right? We publish the papers. But what goes into making that sausage, if you will, is completely tacit. It is completely unknown, right? What makes a scientist a great scientist? What's the working habits? You know, what are the unobserved processes that actually make this... Scientists is great. And in some ways, how science functions exactly. All these things, I think, has been, for a long time, has been, remain as a task knowledge and, and maybe actually only accessible to a privileged few people in science. So I think this is one of the key focus, at least right now in my lab, is to try to figure out, you know, these uh, toxic knowledge transmission, and, and think about, for example, what 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 is mentorship? What makes a mentorship? And can we identify what's the secret sauce of a mentorship in science? And and then can we then scale it and make it a commoditized mentorship? As I always say, so I think these are sort of, in some ways, I, I can see at a high level this idea of credit allocation and the kind of career considerations, a lot of this are embedded in the informal network through different devices with your mentors and exchanges with trusted colleagues. Uh, And I think now with more data and being, people are trying to be more systematic and perhaps more rigorous in trying to understanding the processes in science and maybe a lot of this can get surfaced and discussed and, and make people increase the awareness and hopefully have a better education function, as you mentioned.
1: Yeah. And I think we also let's have the perspective of the numbers in the fact that, that, as Dashun said, you know, back then, uh, you know, hundred to 150 years ago, science has been kind of a gentleman's uh, entertainment, uh, or or a few lucky ones in the courts were supported by royals uh, to kind of pursue their scientific interests. But now it's a profession, and and it's not only a pro- rare profession, but it's it's uh, the number of scientists pretty much since 1900 has been exponentially increasing. Uh, if this trend continues, we're all going to become scientists sooner or later. They uh, will eventually have to saturate, but fundamentally, the scientific work- workforce is giant right now uh, all over the world. And the visible manifestation of science have kind of remained constant, right? We still have a Nobel Prize that gives out four or five things. We still have a relatively few, very, very high-profile journals, and so on. So there's a very odd phenomena happening that there is an exploding workforce, exploding number of scientists, exploding number of people really interested in pursuing knowledge, uh, but they're entering into this workforce with images that are really over 200 years ago. And I think that's one of the things that we're trying to change in this uh, book. As, as Dushun called it, commoditizing effectively uh, mentorship. Let's just call it this way. How do we educate ourselves to be the right mentors for the next generation that's going to be more numerous than we are and will have very different perspectives about uh, you know what it, how do we work together? Because they grew up. In an age of in an age where social networks were kind of secondhand and part of their communication patterns and so on, so science is at the same time exploding, continues to do so since 1900. So there's nothing particularly happening now. It's a continuous process, but it's an exponential. But also the tools and the means of communications are changing drastically, and forcing other patterns of communication that we didn't have before. And collaboration, and how do you find your spot within that space? And when I talk to the young uh, uh, this kind of uh, students and the postdocs, and even my own son, who is a scientist who's getting a PhD in neuroscience, what I see in their mind is this dilemma of what does this mean for them, and. One way to think about it is to look at the data, and we tried in science of science to bring that data-driven perspective to have some objective, somewhat objective perspective of how this happens.
0: Yeah, and 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 what what you say there about mentorship and tacit knowledge uh, speaks. It just speaks directly to again the area that I'm in, EAP, English for Academic Purposes, and and I and I felt spoken to in in your final chapter when you talked um, the last thought as it was as it was called when you talked about um, right the collaborative aspects of this work of science of science and and in particular um, you showed how much that this is really a cause that the science of science must be. Of the sciences and by the sciences and for the sciences, which to me sounded very much like the, the mentality of somebody who is in EAP and helping scientists write. And I felt like our work... Um, <laughs> Could contribute to this is in a sense a part of this. Uh, If if you take for instance a journal for uh, um, English for academic purposes, it uh, publishes regularly on uh, the research article and what it is that we can computatively figure out about research articles, so that we can much as much of the data that you have in your books, uh, book here um, can be turned around and put into a format that is useful for education will help people make decisions when they go to rights that will actually put their research in the light that it belongs in.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, sure. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I, I, just, I'm glad you like this region and this is something I've been thinking Quite a bit. And also, you know, this is something just I want to highlight is a close friend and collaborator of ours, uh, James Evans, has also been sort of talking a lot and helping us thinking through the aspects of all oh, the science of science. So, you know, what would this vision look like? And, and, and so I think a simple way to think about this is I always say, you know, you know, NIH has $40 billion per year, right? So you know, can can you imagine if we can analyze systematically all the data and processes within an And then what if we can improve the efficiency of that forty billion dollars by just 0.1%? You know, that's an enormous return, right, to science itself. And then science spills over to human society in terms of improving human health. So there's a tremendous amount of spillovers overall if we can improve Uh, some of the efficiencies in science and makes us uh, perhaps generate scientific breakthroughs slightly more predictably. Uh, At the same time, every discipline is different, so every scientist has something to offer to sort of further their own discipline, right? E- what eco- ecologists would need what would be different from what cell biologists would, would sort of help their disciplines. But all of these people could also, you know, some fraction of them could turn uh, them into sort of thinking about science of science perspective in improving their own disciplines. Uh, and that's overall, to me, that's a very important vision because if we can improve science, then the society as whole will benefit, right? I think this is uh, another point toward the end of the book that uh, we're hoping to communicate, but I, I think this uh, perhaps uh, should be uh, mentioned more explicitly. And it's this view, right? It's to say, right now, the book is focused on helping science or scientists to better understand science. But to me, there's a broader mission here. That is the role of science and innovation in the broader human society, in sort of improving human conditions and being the core engine for growth and prosperity. And to me, that's a much bigger vision and why sort of giving me a much bigger meaning to why we wanted to, Think about this. Wanted to do this, right? For example, if you think about 200 years ago, you compare 1820 versus today. In the US, the capital uh, per capita income today is about 50 times larger than 200 years ago, and at the same time, you know, child mortality rate decreased tremendously. So, is life expectancy has risen? Uh, by decades, multiple decades. And all of this, amidst all of this, there is a common view that science and innovation is critical. And I think if you look to the next 100 years, science, the role of science and innovation uh, in being the core engine for prosperity uh, is perhaps only going to be more and more important. So this is where I think, to me, you know, all the sciences... You know, this is the opportunity in my mind for all the sciences to first of all improve their own discipline and in doing so make science more useful, even more useful to humanities.
0: And what comes out so clearly in the book is that if we could encapsulate, encapsulate, uh, Darshan, what you've just said under the word impact, uh, which is a word that is co- uh, used throughout the book, of course, it very often means impact inside the field, but here societal impact is affected indirectly through the effects of things in the field. I think that your, your book demonstrates like nothing that I've read uh, um, in Science of Science that so much of what scientists are also after is that impact, yeah? It's not just an empty formula that they sort of write into their introductions when they say that this has relevance to cancer, this has relevance to the environment. They they are truly thinking of these things. And and it shows that this impact is achieved, of course, through the research, but ultimately through the communication of that research, right? A, A person could potentially waste a career being an excellent study designer, whereas a person can forge a career by being an excellent study communicator. And that that brings me back to that idea that I was uh, saying before. Um, the potential for crossover in different fields of education with the science of science to make these numbers speak is, for me... I mean there's just so much potential it's 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 huge. I I wonder what it is that it, either I'd like to hear both your opinions on this what it is that you can see transfer into the educational environment. I mean, we've mentioned, for instance, team science, and then we see PhDs being written alone, for example. We talk about how to write um, the citations properly into your uh, introduction, and we see students sort of citing wildly or citing everything Um i'm just sort of randomly grabbing examples here from from my own experience but uh, what what for you would be one of those moves from your work into the area of education that would be advancing this societal impact
2: so yeah let me talk about something we're doing and just getting started on you know in some way you know i teach in business school so uh you know, my uh, main audience of education are the f- current leaders or future leaders of the business world, right? But at the same time, we realize, you know, just as we were teaching, you know, sort of how helping these leaders grapple with business uh, world, uh, we can thinking about the teaching science of science in a way to scientists, you know, to the top PIs, all the PIs in the NIH or, you know, all the biomedical researchers or different areas and thinking about then can we put this as an educational program to help them maybe better think about how to form a team, better think about negotiating, you know, relationship building with their colleagues. And in some ways even to think about can we uh, more broadly teach soft skills in the sense scientists that will improve their hard skills in return. Because if you think about the educational programs for scientists, they're almost exclusively about developing their hard skills, right, skill development. But at the same time, you know, there may be a greater proper appreciation of soft skills as well that's been overlooked within science, uh, and just as science becomes more and more a collaborative enterprise. Right, so that's these will be some of the examples. We're starting to think here at Kellogg, uh, uh, working with different uh, professors uh, at my school, uh, to think about this. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, indeed, and let me just kind of add to that that indeed uh, there is a room for the for the professional growth in the sense that you know if you are a mathematician, you need to perfect your math, right? If you're a physicist, you need to do what you need to do. If you are a biologist, you need to develop your lab techniques and so on. But no matter how big discovery you make, it's not impactful unless you can actually communicate it. And I think this is where science lacks significantly. Uh, One could even go as far as to say there is a counter selection that uh, that people who are not necessarily the best communicators tend to kind of prefer science because there's impression that that is not the skill that you need. You just need to be able to solve problems in a, in a meaningful way. But, you know, if you are not able to do that, if you're not able to write your ideas down, if you're not able to kind of uh, uh, share it with your community, As if if you would have not done that. And, you know, I have experienced that in my life. You know, when I got interested in network science back in 95, 94, for the first three years, my papers got rejected one after the other. And not because it wasn't good science. I, of course, I'm convinced it was great science, right? (laughs) But because I could not communicate to uh, to the community at large and to my referees in particular of why do we care about networks, and it took me about five years to really find the way into the co- into people's mind is to kind of how you write a paper about networks that the way that the community would appreciate that, and and so and, and because I've never been offered the opportunity to really study that aspect, so the question comes can we really offer that type of knowledge to the future generation? And if we do that, are we taking it away from their core knowledge base, right? And how many hours you have per per day to do so? So these are very interesting balances. And at the end, there is not a simple answer to that. And it depends on the personal affinity. I'm just hoping that there will be say 10% of the scientific future scientific workforce who will find this book. And through them, the knowledge base and how to do that will actually percolate to the remaining 90%. Uh, because we cannot expect everybody to, every scientist to be a great writer. We cannot expect every scientist to be curious about how science works. Uh, but I'm hoping that the community as large will contain this diversity that some do and that know-how will actually percolate to the rest.
0: Well, thank you very much. That is Dashun Wang and Laszlo Barabashi. Their book, The Science of Science, is out 2021 with Cambridge University Press. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Dashun and Laszlo. Goodbye.
2: Yeah, thanks for having us. Bye-bye. Yes. Until next time.
0: (laughs) Thanks, Daniel. Appreciate (laughs) it. And good talking to you. This, and this is good <laughs> and this is goodbye to all of you. Bye bye, and I'll see you next time here on Scholarly Communication.